Welcome to Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey, brought to you by the Antitrust Section of the New York State Bar Association. Undercurrents Unveiled takes you on a four-episode journey through the investigation, prosecution and defense, and follow-on litigation surrounding the high-profile cartel by the lawyers involved. Now, prepare to be entertained while gaining valuable insights into the legal battles that unfolded beneath the surface of this remarkable case. Welcome to Episode 3 of Undercurrents Unveiled. My name is Eli Katz, and I'll be your host for today's episode, Restitution and Repair, Civil Actions for Victims of the Marine Hose Cartel. Today, we'll explore the aftermath of the Marine Hose Cartel's actions by delving into the follow-on civil action and efforts to seek restitution and compensation for those affected by the cartel's behavior. We'll provide insights into the legal process challenges involved along the way and some recollections of war stories um, from this um, from, from these challenges. With me today, we have Ian Browning, Brian Ratner, and Will Reese. Ian represented defendant Manuli Rubber Industries in a multi-district class action against members of the Marine Hose Cartel. Brian represented individual victims of a cartel in the pursuit of their claims globally, um, and he settled with defendant Parker ITR on behalf of this group um, with respect to their non-U.S. claims. Will represented the direct purchaser class in the U.S., which overlapped in part with Brian's class. Uh, Ian uh, is of counsel at Lubin Olson. Brian is a founding partner at Hausfeld. And Will is a partner at Robbins Kaplan. And I am a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery. Will, can you talk from the plaintiff class action perspective about bringing this kind of case, how the civil class actions got started, how you first heard about the Marine Hose Cartel? Sure, Eli, and uh, just wanted to thank you for, uh, for organizing this and, and Natalie and others. Um, so full disclosure, I joined uh, Labatons Yashara, which was one of co-lead counsel in the case in 2009. So the case had, had already started at that point, but uh, I have a very clear picture of, of how it began. And, and this is not uncommon for how uh, similar class actions begin. So uh, back in 2008, um, uh, the DOJ issued a press release and there were a number of follow-on news stories um, about uh, coordinated government raids um, and, and then ultimately uh, indictments of a, a number of individuals and then subsequently companies for engaging in, in price fixing in the marine hose industry. And so upon uh, receiving and, and the publicity about these news reports, the, the very first class action complaint was filed about two weeks later. And, and what typically happens in these class action cases is when the government gets involved, particularly when there are criminal investigations, there are a, a rash of uh, uh, private class action complaints that are filed. And there were a number of those complaints, including my former firm, Labaton Sucharo. Um, and, um, you know, but basically, uh, you know, summarizing in large part the, uh, the government indictments and, and the news stories. Um, and then you're off to the races from there. Ian, um, I know you did some work for Manuli as part of the investigation. And 
could you could you talk to us a bit about what it's like being part of an investigation, uh, settlement of an investigation to the extent that is going on, and then anticipating civil litigation that invariably comes afterwards? Certainly, and, and thank you again, Eli, for for organizing this. Um, this was actually the the first investigation that I worked on. This was one of the very first cases I worked on after law school, and uh, I recall. As a summer associate working in the London office of Sullivan Cromwell, uh, being thrown into the investigation here after the dawn raids had occurred, and it was uh, certainly a interesting time. I think this investigation is slightly different uh, than many regulatory investigations because of it was prompted by these dawn raids, and there was already a cooperating entity that had provided lots of information to the authorities. Uh, but I think with any investigation uh, of this magnitude, you're always cognizant of the fact that there's going to be follow-on civil litigation um, pretty much as soon as the press release goes out. And so that's that's an obvious consideration when you're negotiating a settlement. And I think it's an important reason why you want to be on good terms with the authorities as much as you can. Uh, so you have input into what forms the basis for the settlement and what facts go into the settlement agreement that ultimately will likely become public and uh, try to narrow the scope of any admissions and keep things uh, as as narrow as possible, really. That, I think, is one of the big goals because you know that anything that you admit is going to be something that's used as fodder in the follow-on civil litigation. And do you find that the authorities are responsive um, to those kinds of requests, obviously consistent with their obligations and duties as civil servants, but is that something, do they respond well to those kinds of requests with the understanding that you're thinking about the follow-on? I think within reason, uh, authorities certainly will. They understand uh, that these companies have an interest in in keeping settlements uh, as limited as possible. They're certainly not going to uh, agree to anything in an effort just to help a company. They're they've got a job to do, but there's there's give and take, and you know they have certain things that will be more important to them to get into, for example, a factual background than others. And if you're cooperating. You know, pretty pretty helpfully in providing them information, they're certainly going to be more likely to cooperate with you in that respect. Yeah, and, and if I could just add one thing, you know, in, in many of these guilty pleas, there's typically language that that provides that the the government is not seeking and has not agreed to restitution, um, and there's some suggestion that restitution is appropriate in the you know the the, the follow on civil class actions, and of course as a as a class action lawyer, that's something that we jump on when <laughs> defendants continue to, to vigorously litigate the case that here they are and they've they've agreed to, in, in many instances, um, you know, admit to their participation in the conspiracy and they, they, they pay a criminal fine, but they haven't paid any civil penalties. Um, and, and yet they're they're litigating now, um, trying to uh, <laughs> find ways not to have to, to to compensate those who were, you know, allegedly or arguably injured from the you know alleged anti-competitive activity right right of course now um in in this case as in many similar cases lawsuits can sometimes get filed all over the country or indeed all over the world um can you tell us just a little bit about 
how that came about. Um, where did where did different um, parties, both on the plaintiff side and perhaps on the defense side, want the case to be, and how did it come about that it ended up um, where it ended up, if I'm not mistaken, in Florida? Yeah. So so this was a multi-district litigation. In order for there to be a multi-district litigation, there has to be um, you know you know more than one case filed in, in different uh, jurisdictions. And so here. Uh, if, if memory serves me correctly, there there were cases that were filed in the Southern District of Florida, um, and I think there was at least one case that was filed in the in the Southern District of New York. And you know there there are a number of different rationales as, as to why that happens. I mean, I think part of it is the function of um, you know, fighting for leadership, fighting for lead counsel. Um, different plaintiffs' lawyers may think, um, for whatever reasons, they have certain advantages in certain courts, and, and, and that may be one factor as to why plaintiffs file in a, in a given jurisdiction. Um, and there are also, you know, practical reasons for doing that. So I know my firm filed, my former firm filed in the Southern District of Florida, which which ultimately was where the case was was transferred. And, and in large part, that was because there were um, uh, indictments uh, in, in the Southern District of Florida. There was a grand jury that was impaneled there. And I think ultimately in, in transferring the case there, the court was persuaded, which was interesting, but the court was persuaded by the fact that the, the majority of the civil complaints were filed in the Southern District of Florida. And, you know, that, that, that kind of cuts both ways, right? Because sometimes you'll find that uh, uh, plaintiff's lawyers, they have allies, right? They have other firms that are supporting them and they'll purposely file in the same jurisdiction. So, um, you know, it's a factor, I guess, that courts consider, but of course, defendants in turn argue, well, you know, plaintiff's firms can kind of manufacture what's the proper jurisdiction, if that's the test, by just filing, you know, 20 complaints in one jurisdiction. But but I think here the court was ultimately persuaded by the fact that you had a grand jury impaneled there and you had, as I mentioned, uh, a criminal indictments pending in that jurisdiction. Um, and so ultimately the case was was transferred to the Southern District of Florida. And I suppose in some cases there's also an issue to the extent that the law is a little different in different circuits um, that, you know, defendants or plaintiffs may prefer to be in the second circuit or third or 11th, wherever it may be. I don't know if that played into this yeah, situation. I mean, without, without maybe revealing too much strategy, I think that certainly is a, a factor, you know, particularly on, on, on class certification and there may be specific antitrust issues. And my recollection at the time was that the, the uh, 11th circuit, which is obviously where Florida is, did not have is is developed a body of, of of class certification law, whereas there there may have been some uh, you know more uh, stringent standards uh, in the Second Circuit at at the time. Brian, can can you talk to us a little bit about the appointment of lead counsel? You know, we'll we'll describe the fact that there may be many um, plaintiffs and many plaintiffs' firms coming in. How does the lead counsel get appointed? And also. Um, Explain what is and how does um, private ordering play into this? Sure, and th thanks, Eli, and to you and Natalie for for setting this up. Happy to be here. Uh, yeah, this is uh, a very interesting process that we on the plaintiff side of the V, um, and I do a lot of class work. I actually wasn't in the class um, on the class side in this case, um, but it it um, but in and generally on that side um, in a lot of these types of cases. Um, and, you know, this is a good example of a case that went relatively smoothly from that perspective. Um, you know, there were multiple cases that were filed, but there was not a leadership dispute. Um, Will can confirm this, but there was ultimately a, um, you know, it, through private ordering, the lawyers that were involved 
were able to get together, um, determine how they wanted to structure the case from a lead counsel perspective, um, you know, and, and then ultimately uh, sought approval of that um, order um, from the court um, to give them the authority necessary to litigate the case then on behalf of the class. Um, and, uh, and that um, was then approved. So um, it was something that the lawyers were able to get along, figure it out, um, and do what a lot of courts generally like, right, which is to not litigate a dispute um, at that stage of the case. Um, the, the courts really don't like to deal with these issues. Um, and unfortunately, um, and what happened, you know, 15 years ago in this case um, is very different than what you would see today. Um, I wish I could say the trend in, in having disputes has gotten worse, not better over time. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that, which is probably another podcast. But um, in this particular case, it went smoothly. You had um, the court appoint a leadership slate for the class, and they were able to litigate the case effectively for the class without that being a prominent issue. But it doesn't always happen that way. And there are lots of um, uh, disputes um, that, that ultimately um, go through a process where you're trying to meet in, and argue that you are the best firm or um, structure um, under the 23G factors um, uh, that the court needs to consider. Um, and I wish I could say that there was a recipe for success um, that is consistent across all jurisdictions and courts, um, but there definitely is not. Um, in you know, sometimes courts really like who files first. Some sometimes courts really like you know firms that they think are bigger. Um, you know, everyone says they're experienced in the area, um, and some courts accept that at face value, and other courts really dissect it. Um, some courts like to split the difference and, you know, so it encourages people to file applications in their own right. And others say, no, I, I don't want to deal with this at all. You work it out. So that really forces parties to have to agree when they may not otherwise. So um, it's, that's, it's a little bit of the, of the game on the plaintiff side that you see. And fortunately, this wasn't uh, a big issue in this case. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I'll add that, you know, particularly in a case like this, where, you know, the allegations were largely based on the government investigation. If there were, uh, you know, an adversarial proceeding between firms competing, it would be arguably very difficult for the court to determine appropriate lead counsel, because it's not, you know, one of those examples where you can point to this particular firm kind of came up with a theory or did the majority of the investigation. I mean, again, here, the allegations were, were largely based on government investigations and then ultimately guilty pleas. And let's not forget, obviously, the plaintiffs, the clients um, that the, the plaintiff's firm has, it is very important, right? Who is, you know, who are you representing? Um, and, and, and as we'll come on to, you know, that obviously proved to be an important issue here for class certification purposes. But obviously, the courts do certainly look not just at the firms, but at the parties that are seeking to be um, effectively the class representatives that those law firms are representing. I want to talk a little bit about what happens when you've got, we touched on it a, a bit before, but I want to delve into it a little more deeply. When you have criminal defendants, you have amnesty applicants, and you have class certification all at the same time. Um, let's start uh, with Will. H how do you determine who might be a good class rep in light of that situation? You've got all these facts out there that, that could and should be very helpful to your client. How do you how do you figure out figure out who who would be the right person to represent a whole class of, of injured people? 
Yeah, and that's a good question. And there are a number of factors um, that are, are considered. Um, you know, first and foremost, you, you want to ensure that your your class reps are are members of the class, that they are are typical of of the the rest of the class. And so, by typical, I mean that they were you know injured uh, in a similar way uh, as absent class members. And I think. That tends to be, uh, I, I, I won't say easy, but tends to be less of a burden in a price-fixing case when arguably, um, you know, injury just requires that class members paid more than they otherwise would have had it not been for the price-fixing conspiracy. But, you know, we would, we would often come up with arguments why that's not so easy, as you <laughs> would know. But, 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 I'm giving you the I plaintiff's understand. perspective here. But, uh-huh. but, but yes, um, and, and, you know, another factor, obviously, is, is you want a, a class rep who is going to be involved in the case, who is going to uh, vigorously advocate for the interests of the class. And that means, you know, having at least a rudimentary understanding of the case. Um, discovery is always a, a big concern in these cases because oftentimes our class representatives are not, you know, large, sophisticated companies. And so it's sort of explaining to them what goes into discovery and what the requirements are is, is absolutely critical. Um, and defendants, you know, oftentimes like to make hay out of the fact that, you know, maybe certain documents weren't produced or the class rep didn't do, uh, you know, an adequate search of, of, of it or his or her documents. Um, and then uh, during deposition, one of the things that defendants love to do is to kind of quiz class reps on the intricacies of the case to suggest that these class actions are lawyer driven and not really the result of the, the class reps as, as plaintiffs. You know, I, I will say here in Marine Hose, um, we, we didn't really have uh, a fair amount of options. M- most of the class members, in fact, the vast majority of class members in this case were large uh, oil companies. And, um, you know, typically large companies for various reasons don't like to be class representatives. They oftentimes reach private settlements or they pursue opt out litigations. So, you know, we initially had uh, uh, four class reps. And at the end of the day, we were left with just one class rep, which was a small kind of mom and pop uh, retail operation that, that did not have uh, documents or invoices reflecting its purchase. And I think that was somewhat unique to this case because it, the allegations were that there was a conspiracy that lasted over 20 years and, and this particular class rep purchased early in the class period. But as I imagine we'll discuss in more detail, this really became a very contentious issue in the case and was one of the, the pivotal issues, I think, in, in ultimately enabling us to reach satisfactory settlements. Brian, can you, from your perspective, um, which I think in this case is, is important and very interesting, what were the challenges in terms of class representation and, let's say, recovery for uh, those, those injured or, and, and those most significantly injured by the cartel? You know, this is a very unique case, as Will was highlighting. Um, first, it was not a very big class of victims. So you have hardcore cartel conduct over many years, um, and um, you had you know very significant estimated overcharge damages that those companies suffered, and a, a very large majority of the class were... Um, significant um, petroleum, oil, and gas companies um, who generally are not 
on the claimant side in these cases and, and certainly are not comfortable litigating claims on the claimant side, let alone being a class representative. So um, as a result, uh, and let's not forget, and we'll come on to this too, um, this was a global cartel. It was not just a cartel that impacted the U.S. only within U.S. commerce. It was a global cartel of European, American, Asian companies um, that conspired to fix the price of a very expensive product that these um, oil and gas companies were purchasing over a extensive period of time. So uh, they, so not only did they have the opportunity and and viewed these claims as significant from a U.S. perspective, they were looking at their claims from a global perspective, and there are not. Certainly at that time, there were not, there's not a class action mechanism in Europe. So for example, example, Exxon, which was a member of this class, um, had global claims that it could pursue outside the U.S. and it had to pursue them individually no matter what. So then it's thinking, well, you know, do I want to be an absent class member in, you know, in the U.S. and just let the class proceed and see whether I like the settlement, that any settlement that ultimately is achieved and whether I want to participate in that? Or do I want to um, pursue that claim individually um, and, uh, um, because I have to do it anyways for my non-U.S. claims? Um, and, and our firm and I represented, not Exxon, but, but a very large number of clients that had um, these claims on a global basis and some of whom were absent class members and ultimately did not exclude themselves from the, from the U.S. class but ended up participating in that class settlement because they were happy with the settlements and comfortable with what Will and his firm, uh, his former firm and others um, uh, were able to achieve in the U.S., but then had to pursue those claims globally um, and, and outside the U.S. individually. So um, you can see, though, that not only for the reasons that Will said, but for those big companies, um, it's it's very it's a very difficult uh, situation for them to be in to decide whether or not they want to be a class representative. It comes with work. It comes with an obligation and commitment, the discovery. You've got to have your depositions taken. You're scrutinized. Um, so Will's right. This was unique because of the nature of the class rep that ultimately was was pursuing the claims for the class here. But here's what's You've got to have a private attorney general to pursue these claims, um, you know, the, you know, on behalf of all the victims of, of this cartel. Because otherwise, you've got to pursue the claims individually, or you're not going to gain a recovery. Here, right again, hardcore car cartel conduct, very significant damages, a class mechanism that is is well suited to deliver restitution, redress for the victims. But you've got to have somebody that steps forward that is that private enforcer um, in the U.S. under that system. And in a case like this, where you've got most of those, those companies that are just not comfortable doing it, thankfully, you did have somebody that was able to do so and was deemed adequate by the court um, in that process. And that's critical um, for the system to work. It's critical for deterrence. Um, and it's critical um, here to achieve uh, a result that was, you know, very important for these victims, which was damages, because in the end, um, the government activity, the regulators are pursuing uh, ultimately fines that go to the Treasury. They don't go to the victims. Ian, can you tell us, and, you know, hearing it from the defense perspective, about the, the different um, class reps, if I'm not mistaken, I think there were four that were proposed and advanced early in the case. How did 
the defendants go about trying to um, disqualify them? How did that play uh, into the overall case strategy? And uh, I guess what, why, another question that I think you might be able to address, why, why would you even want to do that? In a lot of cases, in a lot of class actions, consumer class actions, for example, you might have uh, a very deep pool of potential class reps who are all who all clearly sustained an injury in purchasing a good and uh, and were injured in a similar way. Uh, here, from the defense perspective, it was certainly not that case, and it, the class representatives here. As we discussed, you don't have the large oil companies who are the main purchasers of marine hose. You had uh, four smaller companies, really. And uh, if I recall correctly, so with respect to these four companies, three of them ultimately uh, were kicked out of the case. Two of them withdrew voluntarily and dropped their claims entirely after uh, due to the discovery efforts of defendants, we were able to show that they didn't actually purchase marine hose. And I think that was one quirk about this case uh, that's kind of interesting is we're not talking about, you know, loaves of bread or tires on cars, a very easily readily identifiable good. We're talking about something called marine hose that I had no idea it even existed before coming into contact with this case. So the definition of what exactly is marine hose versus other types of hose became pretty central to identifying whether these whether these entities could properly serve as class representatives. Two of them, it turned out, didn't actually purchase marine hose and dropped out themselves. Uh, there was a third, uh, a third class representative, if I recall, uh, that was dismissed by the court uh, because it did not have, uh, believe, it, its purchases of marine hose were not uh, within the jurisdiction of the FTAIA under antitrust law didn't have a direct substantial effect on U.S. commerce. And so I think that's another important point here that was central to this case is just because there's a global cartel doesn't mean that you can get damages for everything in the U.S. The U.S. antitrust laws apply primarily to U.S. activity, and so you have to show that nexus. And that was an issue here for some of these class representatives. Um, with respect to the final class representative that ultimately was held sufficient, uh, there was, from the defense perspective, we vigorously disagreed uh, <laughs> with that order. Um, there were no documents ever produced by the ultimate class representative uh, showing a purchase of Marinos at any time. Uh, I would say it was a small company, uh, certainly not sophisticated on the level of the large oil companies that were the main the main purchasers and so here you mentioned why why would the defendants focus efforts on trying to disqualify class members well because here it could have been it could have struck a, a fatal blow to the case um, three of the four original class representatives were gone we had a final class representative that, from our perspective, was really standing on one one leg that was about to get knocked out, and we thought we had a very good chance of knocking it out. And if we had, we didn't think that they'd be able to find another class representative, and if they couldn't, that would be game over, right? No class representative, there's no class action, and you're back to 
people having to pursue individual claims and whether a lot of these class members would actually want to do that, uh, go through the time, expense and, and trouble was certainly an open question and many probably wouldn't. So it was a, a very important part of part of our efforts to uh, get this case dismissed. Ultimately, uh, you know, we did they, the court. Ultimately, the court did approve uh, one class representative. And I think we'll get to this a little bit later. But I think the plaintiffs realized that their class representatives here were uh, not as good as they would have liked. And at the sort of 11th hour, there was a fifth entity that attempted to intervene in the litigation and join as sort of a to join as a new class representative far down the road. And that was also heavily opposed and litigated. But I think ultimately the fact that there was another potential class representative there uh, may have given the court some comfort in granting class certification in the end. You know, I, I think there was something else that was going on as well. And I don't want to suggest for a minute that that judges are not concerned, obviously, with the law and applying the the appropriate standards for standing and class certification. But, you know, I, I do believe judges are human beings. And I think judges are are influenced by uh, the circumstances and, and, and the facts of the case. And here in, in Marine Hose, you had guilty pleas. You had incredible documents, some of the best documents that I've seen in my career, um, about the price fixing conspiracy, about um, sort of the impact uh, to the class as a result of, of defendants' um, unlawful conduct, and it took place over uh, a period that exceeded twenty years. In fact, the uh, the defendants and I think the documents spoke for themselves clearly engaged in conduct that fraudulently concealed the conspiracy. They destroyed documents. They used code names. Um, you know, they engaged in a host of conduct that made it difficult, if not impossible, to detect before this amnesty applicant um, actually came forward. And I think the court was um, was swayed by by this notion that you've got a, a conspiracy that that's lasted for more than twenty years, arguably. Defendants' records didn't go back that far, and it wouldn't be appropriate to penalize a, a class representative. For not having documents when in fact the reason why it lasted so long was because of defendants you know alleged anti-competitive conduct and and fraudulent concealment so i think you know there were some policy reasons that were going on and i found in my practice that you know when you have guilty pleas and you've got compelling evidence um, and i think there should be an empirical study on this if there hasn't been already but i think you'll find that 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 judges will will, will do a lot more to uh, to find inferences in favor of plaintiffs and certify a class and why would anyone want to do that? And, and how do you persuade someone to actually go through that, have, you know, unlike the absent class members, have their documents scrutinized, be subject to depositions um, by very tough lawyers, such as Ian. We'll talk about that in a minute. Why, why, how, why would anyone want to go through that uh, when you can just sit quietly, let someone else take care of it? And, you know, hopefully if the lawyers are good enough at the end, you get a check. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a challenge. Um, you know, you have to find a, a really special, uh, whether it's an individual or, or a company, but but a special person who is, I think, in large part interested in enacting change. I mean, you know, we typically have, um, you know, individuals or companies that will come to us and they will be very frustrated about what they perceive as unfair or anti-competitive conduct that is hurting their business. 
Um, and I think some of them have a general awareness. And certainly when they approach us, we try to communicate this to them that, you know, unless somebody like themselves steps up, that there's not going to be any real change that's enacted because typically in these class action cases, uh, the cost of litigating a case uh, is so substantial that it will be uh, impossible for an individual plaintiff to do it on its own. I mean, expert fees range millions of dollars typically for these cases, discovery and class action plaintiffs, uh, lawyers often take these cases on a contingent basis, which means, you know, we don't get paid. We don't recover unless we're successful and we front all of the expenses. Um, so certainly there is uh, the concern, the deterrent to some extent for these class reps to deal with discovery concerns, to deal with potential retaliation. But we, you know, we ensure them that we represent them, that we're going to do our best to minimize the discovery burdens to the extent we can, but that without them stepping up, um, it's going to be really, really unlikely that there's going to be any change that's going to be enacted in their industry and that they're going to be able to recover uh, for their injury and for the damages that they faced. You know, the other device that um, I'm not sure it's it's dispositive, but it's certainly something in the toolkit that is is offered is, you know, an assurance that, you know, if we are successful, that we will ask the court for uh, what's known as service fees or incentive awards, which will uh, you know compensate uh, class reps for their time and their expense in litigating the case. And we're always very careful to advise that we can't assure them, you know, any kind of payment. It's all subject to, to court approval, um, but it is something that will, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, lessen the burden on them because, you know, it could sometimes be uh, expensive. And certainly, you know, these folks are trying to run their business and, and to be saddled with having to participate in litigation is, uh, you know, time that, that could obviously be served uh, focusing on their business. But it definitely takes a special kind of individual and, and company to step up and do what we think is, is really the noble and right thing. Ian, can you tell us a bit about um, deposing uh, class reps? I, I think um, it was an important point in your career. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, uh, especially in this case. Yeah, it, it, very memorable deposition because it was actually uh, it was actually the first deposition that I took out of law school, so I remember this pretty vividly. Um, it was a very long day. I I remember I, at the time I was working out of the London office of my former firm. And this was, I don't remember the exact location. Will, it was Alabama that, that Bayside Alabama, was located right. in, I yep, think. That's correct. So I, I remember flying in the night before, not getting much sleep and showing up with my big outline. Uh, and I think it was three, two partners, local council, and the vice president of the uh, of Bayside uh, on the other side. And, and I was there for my first deposition. Um, I had spent a long time preparing for it, as you might imagine. And it was very contentious, to say the least. Uh, as you as we've as probably is evident now, it was an important deposition for the case, because we were trying to uh, make our point that Bayside shouldn't be uh, considered an adequate class represent, representative, excuse me, uh, because it never purchased marine hose. And uh, I know that in its discovery responses, uh, which I had gone through ad nauseum, Bayside had pointed out in response to interrogatories that, oh, here are the, here are the documents showing that we purchased marine hose. And then came to the deposition, showed them all these documents, and Ultimately, they admitted that they had no documents. But 
the class representative, uh, the 30B6 representative, rather, of the class representative, uh, stuck to his guns and maintained that at some point, in the past, he was he was sure that they had purchased some marine hose, and yeah, there were no documents, but nope, he was he was sure about it, and there was no no way he was wrong. But the deposition was a great learning experience. It was a lot of a lot of fun looking back on it, and certainly something I'll always remember. Uh, one one random fact that I remember is that we didn't even take a lunch break. Uh, there was. It was fairly heated, and I think we went probably for eight hours straight and just kept going and churning through it. So it was quite the first deposition. So I, I was so happy when I, I heard that Ian was going to be on this panel. So a, as you can imagine, this was a just a seminal moment in the case for us. And uh, at the time, uh, my, my former partner, who, who passed away fairly recently, um was was defending the deposition and um if if you know her name is hall salzman she is a mild-mannered um very you know strong was a very strong litigator and strong person but just had this very calm disposition about her i used to joke around that if she would slightly raise her tone it would instill the fear of god because she just never did that um but um the war stories of that deposition and, and how aggressive and tough she was because we were obviously protecting our only class rep and then we heard that we had a, a first year associate taking this critical deposition um we, <laughs> it was talked about for quite some time and i heard and you acquitted yourself quite quite well but it was a, a critical moment in in the case and and obviously one that we needed to be aggressive on in order to uh, to protect our class rep and, and obviously from our perspective uh we thought it went quite well well, I'm really glad you you reminded us of Hollis's role in this case, and um, it's worth taking a minute on this podcast to just say that, um, in my view, she's she was one of the great antitrust lawyers that we had seen, um, uh, a leader, um, a uh, a true, um, a great thinker, uh, and 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 a great teacher of a lot of young lawyers and I think including yourself. So, um, you know, let's, let, let's have this podcast be also in, in memory of, of Hollis. So this case actually turned out to have a lot of different settlements at different times. Um, let's first start talking about what sometimes is called the icebreaker settlement. Um, Will, tell us a little bit about that. How did they impact the start of, um, of discussions on settlement? Yeah. So, so I think we, we, intimated this earlier, we had a, an amnesty uh, applicant in the case, Yokohama, which was the Japanese defendant. Um, and um, pursuant to a, a, a statute called uh, Act Para, which is the Antitrust Criminal Penalty and Enhancement Reform Act, the, uh, the amnesty applicant in, in a criminal proceeding, which is the entity that essentially comes forward and blows the whistle and uh, receives an amnesty from criminal prosecution, can, can limit its uh, it's civil damages that uh, only be responsible for single damages rather than treble damages and would be exempt from joint and several liability. Um, and so the, the, the civil cooperator enjoys these benefits provided it, 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 uh, it gives adequate and timely cooperation. And so we had the benefit of this uh, ACPERA applicant who you know, was really helping us um, in terms of providing depositions and interviews and really guiding us in the case, um, and, and that's obviously a, a wonderful advantage 
to have. I surmise there was a, a, a you know some sort of a, a joint defense group, and it was it was well known that we were settling with these entities. And the advantage of an icebreaker settlement: not only do you get cooperation, which we're already getting to some extent from the amnesty applicant, but I think that there's a you know a real incentive when other defendants see that that one or more of their peers are settling to do the same. And, you know, it's particularly true when you can pick off um, a, a defendant that is represented by a firm that seems to be taking the lead on a case. Uh, you're not always able to do that, obviously, and there are multiple reasons why, you know, one particular defendant may have a firm that's taking the lead. Um, but yeah, I think you try to be strategic. I think we were in Marine Hose in, in doing that. And the hope, obviously, is that you have these other firms that, you know, certainly have wonderful lawyers, but they're maybe not for a multitude of reasons uh, is involved in the case and that they may be more likely to settle. So, you know, I, I think that is is one strategy there. And another thing that we we did um, in Marine Hose um, that I think it's it's not a, a one size fits all recipe for every case, but I think it was helpful here, is in the settlement agreements we had with what's known as uh, uh, most favored nation MFN provisions. And so those provisions provided that um, basically said, okay, we are settling with a particular defendant for a certain percentage of its sales. And um, the provision says that, you know, any subsequent we, defendant we settle with, um, to the extent we settle for a lower percentage, we have to essentially remit some of the money to the, the, the prior settler. And so what that does is that provides an enormous incentive, right, for us to insist on a settlement with subsequent defendants for a larger amount. And it also, I think, conversely, puts an enormous incentive on the other defendants to settle quickly because you don't want to be the last man standing, have this MFN and settle for a greater percentage of of your sales. So I think that was a helpful tool. Again, it doesn't work in every case. Each defendant is different. But I think it was a helpful tool here in in building up the, the settlement pot and inducing defendants to settle sooner rather than later um, and in ultimately securing a, 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 a larger recovery for the class. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you bring up with MFNs. Are there any ever times that it is not in your benefit as a class plaintiff's lawyer, a class rep's lawyer, to have an MFN? Are there times you'd want to shy away <laughs> from it rather than include it? Well, you know, we can we can talk about the specifics of this case now. I think since it's it's long finished. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm so glad Ian is here because I always joke around that Manuli was the the bane of our existence. They litigated this case more fiercely than than any defendant. And um, you know, you can have sort of your cases winding up, and maybe you have one or two defendants out there that are not big fish, um, <laughs> but you've got this MFN, and there there's no way you're going to get them to settle, and you you kind of want to finish the case, right? But now you've got this precedent set that if you give them a better deal than everybody else, you've got to remit money to to earlier settling defendants, um, and that can create complexities in, in wrapping up the case or or settling with you know defendants that you know for a multitude of reasons you just you know are not going to get that 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 same sort of deal. So you know I think you have to have a sense of of who the other defendants are, what the circumstances are. Uh, how it's going to benefit you. And you can put some language into the MFNs that provide you with some exceptions and with some outs. And, you know, you just need to try to be creative in terms of how you draft it. But as you can imagine, you know, many defendants are are not so happy with, with that language and others certainly like it because they want to get the best deal. So it, it very much is the, dependent on the circumstances and assessing who the other defendants are and whether you think you're getting the big fish sooner rather than later. Now, Brian, you had uh, represented a, a bunch of, Marine host purchasers 
who entered into private settlements outside of the class. Um, tell us a little bit about that, um, because it is, as, as we've discussed earlier um, in our conversation, somewhat unusual, at least the, the number and uh, percentage uh, that we had in this case um, that went that direction rather than uh, through a class. Right. And I think that, you know, it was unusual that you had the at, at that point in time, I mean, a lot has happened in private enforcement in Europe since. So it is a much more uh, developed area um, for claimants in Europe today than it was many years ago at this time. So not to mention, as we were saying, the makeup of these claimants, um, the types of companies they were, their comfort level being on the claimant side and pursuing a cartel damage claim um, and being prepared to litigate if necessary, um, you know, was was very unique. Um, obviously, you know, our strategy at that time was to, you know, essentially have a, a quasi class strengthen numbers and to get a group together. So even though you, um, for each of these very large companies, um, that were our clients, even if their individual claim wasn't so great, by grouping them together with other companies um, and, and approaching that uh, with that strategy, they were more comfortable to step forward alongside others, sharing costs, sharing um, information, and so on. Um, and that proved to be very helpful for us. Also, having that core was critical to agreeing this global private settlement that we reached with Parker ITR, um, which um, at the time and since um, is a really novel, innovative um, resolution. Um, and, and, you know, so you can only imagine kind of our view of it at that point in time, which effectively was Parker ITR agreeing um, to an opt-in settlement scheme for all of its customers where it offered, Ian's going to fall off his chair, but it, but it, you know, for, you know, it, by offering all of its customers, um, 16% of its sales during a period of time. And this is because I, I'm joking with Ian, because I know that, you know, not, and this goes to Will's kind of d description of how you're looking at settlement strategy here. You know, all the defendants, we, we think a conspiracy, you know, right. You're all in it together, joint and several liability, you know, um, you're on the hook for everything, but obviously the defendants look at it as, very differently, not apples to apples. You know, if Manuli feels like it went to, you know, was invited to some meeting, went to it, didn't really realize it was there. And next thing you know, it's hit with 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 fines and, and all of this exposure, very different than the ringleaders, the really big players, the big fishes will say. So all of these defendants obviously have a different view of their culpability, their exposure, how they sit vis-a-vis -vis the others. Um, so in Parker's case, they really weren't contesting the liability. They had some issues around scope, how many years they were involved in the case. So that ended up being very important in the settlement terms. So we agreed to a shorter period of time that kind of um, was limited their exposure on a global basis to what the European Commission found in its decision, um, which was shorter than, for example, the U.S. Uh, class conspiracy period and some other um, periods that you could have argued for, but they were prepared to pay obviously 16% of sales to any of their customers that wanted to come forward during a reasonable period of time, um, like you would go through a notice process on the US, um, and um, were prepared to pay on that basis. Now it helps, right? And again, the overall value of that across the entire class for them was not 
you know, enormous. It was a price they were willing to pay if they had 100% participation, number one. Um, number two, and I think this is one of the most innovative parts of it, um, and they're represented by Jones Day. So this is a firm that, that defends and litigates all the way in a lot of different cases. So the, for them to be thinking in, in this type of innovative fashion was quite a unique situation. Um, and But their view was, um, they, they view this almost as a customer service exercise um, where they were, they you know, in a case where they have admitted liability to, they have admitted to the conduct and they're saying, we accept responsibility for this. We want to fairly compensate our customers. Um, and they felt it was an investment in future business with these customers because what was very interesting about this case, right, is, and this is not the case with a lot of, of these cases where you've got a class that doesn't have, you know, um, the kind of makeup that this one did. Lots of big companies um, buying the product that's expensive, but not that many times, um, you know, where you can you can kind of say to yourself, all right, these are important commercial relationships with most of the class. So it's worth us, you know, um, paying more, even though each of these companies may not individually pursue their claim and litigate against us, that it's still worth it. And, and it goes to my point from earlier that like we had a big enough core, let's say 30, 40 companies of a class of 100 that were prepared to do that. So it was enough exposure for them to say, you know what, it's worth it for us to make this offer. And in the end, we probably had about 80 to 90 percent did end up opting in and taking that deal. And the others that didn't either did their own deals and you had very few that just didn't do it and didn't pursue it. So that was a very high success rate. And to this day, I think they felt that it was a, um, an important from their, from a business perspective and it paid itself forward. Do you find Brian that that kind of strategy from the, from the defendant's perspective works better in a, this kind of a, let me call it a structured private settlement. I think it's a great tool. And I, and one key feature that I mentioned that I, that I forgot to mention is, which was really attractive to Parker, which was, and they negotiated hard for it, um, which was for, you know, they, they, they set up a settlement fund equal to a hundred percent, right. Of the 16% of sales during this period of time. And for whatever wasn't claimed, this is the key with an opt-in, right. Whatever is not claimed, right. Reverted to them. Right. So they were only paying out for those that participated. Right. Whereas we know with an opt out class settlement, for example, right, um, you're submitting the money. There's no reversion. Right. So basically, then that 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 pay that they pay out to the class is done and then on a pro rata basis based on those that participate. So what is um, I think, uh, attractive. And I think for, for a lot of claimants that have significant purchases, it gives you certainty around the, the recovery that you're going to get, um, which you don't have, um, in a class action. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it gives you certainty around timing, um, and you know, you're in control of your claim. Right. So I think all those things are really key factors. So when you're a company that has a sizable purchase or a sizable amount of purchases, um, that, and, and you are otherwise prepared to litigate that claim, that, that claim individually, um, it has a lot of attraction to it because even though you don't, have to worry about litigating if you're an absent class member. You don't have to do discovery. You just have to submit a claim. Um, the reality is um, you're essentially, um, you, there is great uncertainty 
Now, you could end up getting a windfall because if the, if the claims rate is low, whatever that class settlement amount is ultimately gets distributed pro rata. So if your damage of a, with 100% participation is X, your, you know, your, um, your ultimate recovery on a pro rata basis based on claims rate could be 3X. Um, at the end of the day. Um, but then you have to factor in what the class settlement fees are and expenses and all those other things that are coming out. Um, and, you know, so maybe after all that in the wash, it could be, you know, maybe it's 2x, um, but you don't know. And it also could be lower than than what you would otherwise be expecting. So I think that those are the key things that oftentimes you you try to figure out. If you're if it's significant enough where you might otherwise pre- be prepared to pursue that individually, um, then this type of a and you and you can do it as part of a group that can yield you this type of a recovery. Um, and in this case, we we actually didn't do very much litigating globally um, against you know we did we we. Um, filed a litigation in London, essentially f- with with a couple uh, clients that were stocking horses for the group sitting behind, and use that to leverage a settlement ultimately with all of the defendants on that basis. Um, you know, which was attractive, obviously, to all of those individual claimants because they could do something, but not have to go through you know a significant disclosure, a lot of hardcore. Uh, difficult, uh, challenging, expensive litigation, um, and still get you know certainty around their recoveries. When you have this kind of private settlement, even when it's quite sophisticated and complex and structured as an opt-in, you do not need a court to approve that. That's a private agreement between exactly. two parties or multiple parties. Is that, am I right on that? Now there are new collective mechanisms in Europe, but you know, really at that point in time, um, you, you had to resolve individually. And that's why here, right, this opt-in scheme was designed for that. Ultimately, you had, as you said, you had the structure, but then you were ultimately having a bilateral contract between Parker and each individual customer. Ian, I wanted to ask you, I know that in, in this case, and it doesn't, doesn't always happen this way, um, your client opposed... Um, many of the settlements. Can you tell us briefly, if you can, why your client had decided to do that and some of the arguments that you were making as to why those settlements should not be approved by the court? Sure, sure. And I I think Will would argue that uh, my client didn't have the right to oppose the the settlements in the U.S. litigation either. Um, And arguably, he would be correct. They didn't have standing, as I think the court ultimately recognized. Uh, But uh, to be honest, we didn't really care. Uh, it was, it was from our perspective, it was an opportunity to uh, bring to the court's attention, if you will, regardless of standing issues, problems that we saw with the class representatives, which we've discussed earlier, as well as uh, some just uh, interesting differences between the settlements. For example, there were inconsistent definitions of key product at issue, marine hose. There were inconsistent timeframes. And obviously, it's not to any defendant's benefit to have all a significant number of other defendants settle out, especially in an antitrust case where you've got treble damages, joint and several liability. The more defendants that settle, the more uh, leverage that gives to the plaintiff. So it was in our interest to keep the other defendants, uh, many of whom were bigger fish, uh, in the case um, and not let them out, especially when we saw, when we felt that the representative uh, plaintiffs 
were not representative and there were just odd differences uh, in some of the settlement agreements from our perspective. Um, I think ultimately uh, the plaintiffs wisely took the opportunity and, and amended some of those differences and, and that, that they were able to, to kind of cure it on the back end uh, and they ultimately were approved. But I think that's what, uh, what Will was referencing in part when he was talking about Manuli constantly being the thorn in his side because we, we took every opportunity to point out every weakness that we could. And, and it, it certainly delayed the settlement process uh, and, and prevented, prevented some of these co-defendants from getting out as quickly as they probably would have liked to. Our time is nearly up, and I wanted to just end with a kind of lightning round question for, for each of you about what is it that you remember most about the Marine Hose Cartel case, and why do you think people are still talking about this case um, over a decade later? Thanks, Eli. So I think that the um, main thing, obviously, that I remember about it is, is, is this Parker settlement um, and the unique nature of um, getting a company to agree to a scheme like that, which at the time was the first ever, uh, we believe was the first ever private global settlement agreement of that nature. Um, we do a lot of this kind of work and um, it's been replicated in certain forms since, but it was very, you know, especially innovative um, at the time. And to me, what it says is that in, the certain, in a certain kind of case um, where, you know, the, where a party has admitted to anti-competitive conduct of the type here has paid fines. Um, and um, ultimately, the case is not about liability. It's about the damages suffered by the victims of, of the cartel. And, you know, at, and for, and for, and I hope it is a message um, to any company that is faced with this in the future to think about um, a, resol a resolution on reasonable terms and, and the business relationships um, and, and trying to be more proactive earlier versus taking and litigating every single point. Um, and at the end of the day, um, are they really, really better off? Um, because here, in our view, and from the discussions I've had with Parker's counsel since, I think their their position was this was um, a, a, a very important um, and successful uh, approach um, that their client took. Um, and, and, and that's how they view it after the fact. I was involved with a, a deposition of a, a, a former Manuli employee who actually went to trial and was acquitted. And the the vitriol uh, in which he responded to the deposition questions, and despite the fact that, um, again, I thought we had some wonderful documents uh, reflecting his participation in the conspiracy, but you know, using his acquittal as as a you know kind of a, a basis to be indignant that we would even dare to depose him. Uh, but I think there's a lesson to be learned there, and that you have to be you know selective in terms of the witnesses that you choose to depose. And you know, every once in a while, you have uh, you have a guilty plea, but you have individuals who are acquitted, and um, you know, they, there's certainly different standards between criminal liability and, and civil liability. Um, but I think this witness was coached up uh, very well, and I think um, also had certainly his 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 personal share of indignation that he was going through this and you have to be very careful in terms of who you depose and, and the questions that you ask and and uh finally in terms of, of of why the case was memorable you know i i think again this may be a plaintiff's perspective but i think you know defendants and price fixers have gotten kind of better and better at at sort of uh 
kind of hiding the, uh, the, the, the price fixing conspiracy, sort of the anti-competitive conduct that they engage in, or they're, they're more selective in terms of what they say and how they say it. Of course, there, there's some exceptions, but here, and I mentioned this earlier, I think in, in, in all the cases I've litigated, I've never seen so many great documents. I mean, in, in this case, uh, the, the, uh, manufacturers of marine hose literally, uh, you know, hired an, ent- an entity, uh, and this, this gentleman, Peter Whittle and his company that was in charge of determining who would win a bid. I mean, it was about as blatant of a price fixing conspiracy as you'll ever see. So we, we really had some powerful, uh, liability evidence, um, which you just don't see every day in these cartel cases. Well, I've already talked about that deposition, which is certainly something that I'll always remember. But I think in addition, somewhat similar to what Will just said is sort of boldness. Um, In addition to the documents, it'll always stick with me that, you know, the Dawn raids that led that ultimately prompted the civil litigation uh, and the FBI raid occurred in Florida where there was a meeting taking place. And I've always had the question in the back of my head, why were you having a meeting in Florida? Why, why did you come to the U S for this? This, there were companies all over the world. Um, everybody knows that the U S takes uh, price fixing and antitrust law extremely seriously, uh, in contrast, especially at the time to some other countries, uh, where the penalties could be significantly less. And it's just always stuck with me that they didn't have to come and have this meeting in Florida, yet they, they felt must have felt secure enough and, uh, and just weren't worried. And they clearly should have been. Um, I want to end by, by thanking you, um, Ian Browning, Will Reese, Brian Ratner. I also want to especially thank Natalie Pita for all the work she did to help us put together um, this great program. This concludes episode three of Undercurrents Unveiled. We invite you to join us for our final episode, Beyond the Conviction, Policy Considerations and Compliance, to hear reflections on the broader implications of the case on corporate recidivism, antitrust enforcement, compliance programs, and more. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey. It is produced and shared by the NYSBA's Antitrust Law Section. The opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent their employer or other organizations. If you liked what you heard or would like to become a member of the NYSBA, please check out what the antitrust section has to offer at nysba.org slash committees slash antitrust dash law dash section.